Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we are going to be talking about Shana Rishana, the first year after marriage. What's it all about? Is this a halachic concept? Is it a mitzvah midel raisa? Is it just an advisable thing to do? Who has the mitzvah? Who has the obligation? What's the source? Are there halachas about this? How should the year be spent? What are the common issues that come up? This is a real transition going from being single, dating and then going on to marriage with a real commitment, what preparations can be helpful. And we'll also talk about the family issues that come along with it. A chassan joining his kala's family, the kala joining her chassan's family. What are the issues? What are the challenges? And what are some of the solutions? We are going to speak with a number of experts in this area. We are going to start off talking with the great Posek and Mechanech, Rabbi Zevlev, Rav, Posek, Rosh Hashiva, and so much more. Then we are going to speak with Rabbi Dr. Eitan Eisen. He is a Rav and a clinical psychologist. So we'll start talking about the sources for Shana Rishona, and he will walk us through how the halacha, how the hashkafa matches with the psychology in this area. And then we will go on and speak with Daniel Frank, the licensed marriage therapist and dating coach, to talk about how specifically the year should be spent. Focus on each other. Does that exclude other things that should not be focused on? So we will get into detail with Daniel Frank on that. And then we will speak with Mrs. Penina Flug, she is an emotionally focused couples therapist to talk about how to best build a strong relationship during Shana Rishona. Why are we talking about this at this time of year? Number one, we have Lagba Omer upon us. This is the season for marriages, and that continues throughout the summer, but especially starting with Lagba Omer. So many people get married. Hopefully, the show will be helpful to the Chas and the to the Kala, to their parents, the in laws, everyone involved, and uh, hopefully, for everyone that listens, it will be a helpful show as well. And also Dafyomi this coming week is getting up to the Sugya at the end of Sota of Shana Rishona. So consider this an Iyun Shir on the Dafyomi that is coming up. Also, I just do want to flag something that came to my attention recently. A young lady in Shiduchim recently started an organization for young ladies who are waiting to get married. It's called Meaningful Meanwhile. And the push is to say, make your time worthwhile. Make it useful. Don't only look forward to marriage which is an important thing as well, but you should be productive and happy. Meanwhile, anyone who's interested in getting the wonderful videos, I've seen a couple of them from Meaningful Meanwhile, please email meaningfulmeanwhile at gmail.com. Again, meaningfulmeanwhile at gmail.com. Before we go to our guests, just a couple of thoughts on, on Shana Rishona. So the first is, I think I actually said this a few years ago, there's an interesting question, why the brach of Shechayanu is not said at a marriage. And the uh, reason I heard from Rav Hillel Rotman, who is a Rosh Chabubur at the Mir, he says the concept of Shechayanu is that when something is at its best, that is when you're going to say the Shechayanu. For example, a brand new fruit or great new clothing, when it's new, fresh, that is when to say the Shechayanu. But when it comes to a wedding, the concept is not that it's at its best now and it's only going to degrade over time, but it's that it's at its 
starting now, hopefully great as well, but things are only or should only improve from here on out. And accordingly, a Shachianu is not warranted here at the beginning because things will improve, improve. And I think that's an interesting insight relevant to our topic today. Ashana Rishana, oftentimes we think that this is going to be a great year and start off and it's fun and just have a great time. Then oftentimes there are challenges involved and it's not necessarily a time of Shachianu starting off with the best. And that's what we're going to be talking about. How to use the year in an effective, productive way to try to start off that marriage, even though this is a difficult transition, to make it the best possible and to set the groundwork for what will Amir Tashem be a very successful marriage, improving over time. Another uh, interesting thought as it relates to Shana Rishana, one of the brachas that we say at the Shabra brachas is, Sameach Tesamach Reim Ha'uvim Kesamechacha Yetzircha Began Eden Mikerem so there, that Hakadosh Baruch Hu, the bracha is Samer to that we should have these beloved companions. They should be as happy. This is the bracha that we give, and we give a bracha to Hakadosh Baruch Hu that uh, he should enable this. Is that these beloved companions should be as happy as they were as Adam and Chava were when when Gan Eden. And there's a very interesting insight. What is the comparison to Gan Eden? And it's talking about Adam and Chava that they had no ulterior motives. They weren't looking to anything external other than at each other because neither of them was ever thinking I want somebody more beautiful I want somebody with more money I want somebody with greater yichas because there was nobody else there was no one more beautiful there was no one with more money they own the whole world then there was no one with greater yichas there was no one around but in fact they had no yichas because they were starting everything off and the message here to the new chasen and kal is these should be just like Adam and Chava don't look for anything more don't be thinking about I want somebody with better looks, with more money, with greater yichas. This is what you have. This is the ideal person for you. And make the best of it. And that should be your focus, especially during Shana Rishona. Build that relationship so you will have that as a strong foundation for moving forward in a wonderful marriage. Before we go to our guest, let's hear our riddle of the week. For this week's riddle, we have a question not only on Parsha's Emor, this week's Parsha, but also relates very much to our topic of the week. And the question is as follows, where do we have in this week's Parsha a rem as a hint to the concept or the mitzvah of Shmona Esther, the chuppah, that when a boy reaches 18 years old, that is when he should seek to get married. So where do we have the remez? Somewhere in this week's Parsha, Shmona Esther, the chuppah. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's 02-372-0304. And now let's go to our wonderful guests.
Joining us now is Rabbi Zev Lef. Rav Lef is a renowned posek. He is a popular lecturer, a Rosh Yeshiva, Rosh Kolel, an author, and so much more. Rav Lef, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And uh, forget about all those accolades. Uh, just introduce me as your friend. You know what? That would be very accurate as well, but they're all accurate. <laughs> so, so Rav Lev, thank you so much for joining us. Really, we're talking about Shana Rishona, which sounds great, but it's a challenging time. It's a real transition in many ways. And I'd like to talk about halachic and hashkafic aspects of that transition. And one that's probably not talked about very often, maybe we'll get to the more common ones in a little bit, but I wanted to talk about when you have a a new kala that is joining a new family or a new chasen that is joining a new family. Maybe we'll start off with the kala. How does she properly interact with her if she has new brothers-in-law or a brother-in-law? What should the interactions look like? And does this depend on the minagamakam or any other factors? Um, what, what advice would you give? Okay, I, I really think, not, not calling it minagamakam, but places and families are, are very different. They're very uh, strict and formal places. I think the English, in a general way, are like that, very formal. Um, Americans are, to the other extreme, sometimes uh, very informal. The main thing is that the relationship between a new Kala and her brothers-in-law, or for that matter, a new Hostin and his sisters-in-law, should not be one of Kala's Roche. That is across the board for sure. What is Kalis Rosh depends on what the minig of that place is. Not so much as minig, but what the um, the social nature of that place. If the, norms, the place, right, the social norms, right? If if the place is very um, formal, right, and people uh, uh, deal with each other in a very formal way, then anything less than that formality would be Kalis Rosh. On the other hand, if the place is very informal, right, then as long as red lines aren't crossed, where it becomes something negative in Kalis Rosh, but it's the normal conversation, social conversation of that place, even though it's between men and women, or even surely be- between uh, brothers-in-law and sister-in-law, where it's a family thing. I think the rule is, if it's looked upon as a family kind of conversation, then that's fine. If it's anything less than that, depending again on the norms of the place, then that's a problem. So if it if it gets into the realm of Tarbasichaimaisha, we would say Al Tarbasichaimaisha. That would be a red line. But that's Sikha. Sikha again is something that lends itself to Kalis Rosh. But if it's serious conversations, important conversations, or even socially acceptable conversations, that's a, that's a different story. Very good. Now, how about going by first name? That's often a discussed issue in the workplace as well, calling by first name. So how about when it comes to family members of sisters-in-law and brothers-in-law? And in families, I think it's an accepted thing to call family members, right, uh, whether they are your uh, immediate family or married into family. In most places, calling them by their first name is not something that shows endearment. It just shows a certain amount of familial um, closeness. In the workplace, it may be different. In a workplace, business-like, 
people refer to each other as Mr. or Mrs. or Miss or whatever. And they're referring to a, by a first name may be more endearing, right? If that's not how everybody else deals with it. But I think in a family situation, most places in the world, it's acceptable to call family members by their, by their first name. However, maybe elderly aunts, uncles, um, great aunts, great uncles, they're because of the stature of the age difference. There may be calling by a first name is not proper, not because of the gender, but because of the age difference. Right, right. Now let's talk about in-laws as opposed to the brothers and sisters-in-law, the in-laws themselves. So what are the basic halachas of showing kavod to in-laws? You enter a family, you know, kibud avaim, and now you have a kibud chami v'chamiha. Well, what are the basics of the halachic requirements for giving honor to one's in-laws? According to the Sefer Haredim, the halachas apply to a father-in-law and mother-in-law exactly the same as a father and a mother. However, halachically, that's not necessarily the case. And the most posts can hold that you have to give them uh, COVID, but not the same COVID as a parent, meaning you don't have to stand up full, uh, full uh, standing up when they come into your area. And um, you can call them by their names, unlike a parent. Um, a person should strive to treat his in-laws um, with the same respect that he treats his parents, but just for solemn bias purposes. And that's covered for the for the spouse. And since there is an opinion like that, there's no reason why not to. And um, and therefore, uh, one should not refer to his in-laws by their names, by their first names, unless the in-laws don't want that. Right? They say I've never seen that. I've uh, never seen that. Right? So. This, it becomes uncomfortable sometimes to call someone Abba and Ima if you call your parents Abba and Ima. What I've seen is that whatever you call your parents, if you call them Abba and Ima, call the in-laws Tati and Mommy or Mom and Dad or whatever. This way, there's still a distinction. Some people have the custom not calling them by the names. They don't feel comfortable calling them mom and dad or whatever. So they don't call them anything. They just say, hey, or something like that. That's really not that that really makes the in-laws feel like outlaws. So it's uh, not not really a proper thing. That's that's really disrespect. Right. Now, I think an issue that comes up a lot, especially in Shonari until you work out the uh, system is who do you go to for the first yant or the second yant? So are there halachas in this regard or are there customs in this regard or just try to work out shalom bias as each case comes along? The Gemara says that was what was customary in the time of the Gemara, in the Mishnah, that a kala would go home for the first yontif, uh to uh, show off her husband and to let her parents know how successful the marriage is. Or Rahman Litzlan to complain about her husband or whatever and uh, whatever feel to be safe in a uh, safe environment. In any case, whatever it is, I think the minig is like that, that the first yontif they spend by the wife's parents. And after that, I think that the safest thing is, no, no halachas, Halacha is do what will bring the most shalom. And if the, the, the parents say, the parents of the, of the husband say, look, we understand your wife wants to go to her parents, first yantif or whatever. So 
we're mavater, or the opposite. The, the parents of the kala say, look, we know that really the custom is this way, but we're, we're, we're 100% okay if you go to your parents, and maybe there are mitigating circumstances why either family can't have the other ones for that first young. The, the first, best thing to do is to work things out um, in what it will bring the greatest shalom, and everybody should agree and be happy. The, the, the situations where there is tension, each one demands they come to me or whatever, that those kind of families are going to cause problems besides who goes for Yontif. And uh, there, I think they need outside help to be able to chart their way for the future. Right. That's not only going to be an issue for Shalom, uh, Shana Rishona, but right. going forward as well. So let's talk specifically about Shana Rishona. Chas and Kala, they get married. What should they do what should they fo- focus on during Shana Rishona? They, can fo- they should focus on getting to know each other and uh, each one's strengths and weaknesses. And they should uh, praise each other when they recognize things that are strengths. And uh, they should uh, give a mild tochacha when they see weaknesses that uh, could be corrected um, within reason of not becoming the mashgiach of the father or the husband or the uh, the uh, overbearing husband of the wife. But yes, yeah, probably they want to get to know each other in such a way that they appreciate the, the very positive things that they didn't recognize before they got married and also to work on those negative things also. Also, they should be be open to give to each other. The Mikhtar Malio says that love is generated by giving. So they should find opportunities to give to each other to create that real Ava. And in addition, Ava means an achtos, a commonality. Try to find things that they have in common, right, that they can enjoy together. And that also strengthens the bond between them. And, um, uh, and they should work and speak about and learn together um, the foundations of building a home. Uh, they should, there's plenty of sparring that they could learn that not only halacha, but hashkafa of how to set the foundation. If you want to be successful in building a home, you have to have a good foundation. So that first year is creating the foundation. And uh, they should uh, discuss together what their what their dreams are for the future, what kind of home they want to see, and uh, and create this uh, this foundation hashkafically and halachically. And if they need to go to classes, or seek um, um, uh, guidance, and and they should also pick a a a rough that can guide them that they both feel comfortable with. That's also very uh, very important. So the, the activities are focusing on each other and building the relationship together, and, and, and creating a foundation for creating a home and building a home for the future. Now, how about activities vis-a-vis others? For example, socializing with other couples, other newlyweds, or they each probably have single friends at this point. Should they do hachnasas orachim when they have single friends that are their same age? Or we could say even uh, kiruv activities with people of the opposite gender having singles over for meals. Are those proper activities during Shana Rishon or should they be more limited to the domestic relationship as opposed to the international relations? People don't live in a vacuum. You need friends. You need to feel that you're reaching out to other people. So as long as it doesn't become at the expense of their relationship, that enhances their relationship. So you have to know how to balance balance the two. But I wouldn't say that 
Shonari Shona, they should have no contact with anybody else except themselves, but a lot of their mind. So uh, they have to have a connection to other people also. And again, like we said before, the nature of socializing or whatever uh, with other people, with other couples or whatever, has to follow the social norms where it doesn't cross the line of Kalis Roche, but is normal social relationship. So balance and propriety. Yes, Okay, very good. Let's talk about finances because uh, time when people get married, especially if they're younger, not working, learning in Kolel. So that's a real challenge as well. And there are always those discussions of assistance and support and the in-laws, the parents and etc. Is there a time that uh, parental support for newlyweds is halakhically mandated or if not halakhically mandated, required that it would be advisable? And to the best of my knowledge, there is no halacha that parents have to support children over six. Uh, today, the minig is to support children over six. But uh, children that are already on their own and married, I don't think there's a halachic, what's it called, or even a social um, mandate that they be supported by parents. However, in many places, parents who can afford it understand that they have to help their children because they have to get on their own two feet or they're supporting them in kolil or whatever. If the parents are doing that uh, willingly, then that's fine. To demand it of parents who are not interested or don't understand the importance of it, right, is, uh, in my estimation, very wrong. Parents, on the other hand, have a responsibility if they have money to give to tzedakah and they and they help other people, the closer the relationship, the more the responsibility to help people out tzedakah was. But it's a din of tzedakah, and therefore, meiser money can be used for that too. So meiser money can be used and... Uh as long as they're above the age of six, or maybe if the uh, custom in a society is to support to a certain point, but after that point, would be, which would be marriage, you can even use your maizuk suffering for it. Right. Okay, very good. Now, I, I always had this question, when it comes to support, we have the concept of the that somebody enters into a contract, somebody is the earner and somebody is the learner, and they reach an agreement, how much is going to be given and how much the schar is going to be divided. When it comes to parents or in-laws supporting children, supporting an avrech, somebody learning a kolel, or it could be even maybe above the age of six, if you're supporting a son in, in yeshiva, that'd be an interesting question as well. Is there, when you're supporting a relative, do you have to have that discussion that the support is going to be a we're entering into a contractual relationship now, a partnership, or is it by virtue of supplying the needs? Is there an automatic meaning is this the schar of meiser and tzedakah when supporting, or would a parent or in-law, if they prefer to have the shutfus without having the conversation, because that may be a little bit of a sensitive issue to have that conversation I'm taking half of your schar or part of your schar. Is there going to be maybe by default a shutfus yitzachar zulun? Okay, first of all, whether the schar is diminished by somebody else being a, a partner is a very big shiloh. And probably it's not. So you're not giving up your schar by having somebody else support you. You're just, they're just enjoying that schar ha-Torah. According to some opinions, it has to be prior to the support that I'm doing this in order to share in your Torah. If it's done afterwards, then it's merely tzedakah. Also, there's an opinion that the support has to be the majority of the person's support, not just a little bit, 
but that the person can only learn Torah because of, he's getting this support. In any case, if the parents or in-laws or together are giving the major support to somebody sitting and learning, and they mention ahead of time that they're doing this because they appreciate the fact that this person can sit and learn Torah and they'll benefit from that schar, then that's ideal that they should mention it ahead of time. And then they get not only a mitzvah of tzedakah, they get in addition to that the, the, the schar ha-Torah, which is a very, very special thing. So, uh, um, yeah, if they're going to do it already, they might as well get the full benefit from it. And the person who's learning is not giving up anything. It's like a candle. Right, you can light ten candles, and it doesn't diminish anything. The one candle that's lighting the other ten. Right. Nowadays, they call that a, a win-win. Right, exactly, exactly. They, but but the the person who's learning shouldn't take for granted that the the parents or in-laws are required to do this. He should feel that the, the couple should feel a tremendous amount of gratitude that they're doing something that they don't have to do. But they're doing it willingly. And if they're not doing it willingly and the, the couple makes them feel guilty and they give it begrudgingly, better to find some other way. Also, even in communities where the majority of people, whatever, are learning and it's expected that the person gets, gets married, he goes and learns in Kolo. I mean, full long time. Um, that's not necessarily what everybody should be doing. Okay. Um, my Rashi Shiva of Gifter said, Unfortunately, there are people who are imprisoned in yeshivas who don't belong there, right? Would be much more productive if they were koveya eating the Torah and had a regular job. And yeshivas weren't meant to be prisons. And in tells, they allowed people to learn for five years. And after that, they made a, a cheshben, whether they would be more productive sitting in a base marriage and probably not learning a good portion of the time because they're not cut out to sit and learn a full, full day, and they should go to work, support other people learning Torah, and, um, and be Kovea eating the Torah, and be very, very fine balabatim. Klal Yisrael had 12 shvatim. Two of them were Torosim Nosim, Levi and Yisachar. The rest of them had jobs. So I don't know if that's a popular thing to say, right? But it's true. And there are people who should not be learning full time and are only doing it because socially they're forced to do it. And the male, they spend more time drinking coffee, walking around, talking, than learning. And during that time, they can be much more productive, feel better about themselves, and, and contribute more to Cloud Israel than being in a base medrash and not learning. Yeah, that, that's definitely an issue. And I think also nowadays we're probably seeing the opposite issue. Some people who are going to work uh, because of the attractiveness of the finances, and they should be staying either in learning or actually teaching. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Works both ways. Yeah, it works both. Now, it, it, 10, 20 years ago, it really didn't work both ways. Uh, but but nowadays, uh, I feel that we have a, a lack of what I'm hearing, at least outside of Israel, is that there's a lack of people going into chinuch and teaching. Right. And uh, it, it could be unfortunate that the the pendulum outside of Israel is starting to go a little bit too far. And I've been thinking about having a topic on that, Rev Lev. I would like to recruit you for it in front of our whole seaboard. <laughs> when I can get a uh, catcher's uh, protective uh, protection and a helmet, I will consider it. Right, but that, that, so I, I have one more question for you, because this was a very important takeaway that uh, parents, in-laws giving support, oftentimes they'll just give the support, but they won't have the conversation about, about having a shutfus. And a shutfus is an amazing thing, a very powerful thing in particular for the person who's supplying the funding. 
it's it's to me it's it's just should be done so much more nowadays and it's not so my question is as follows for the person who is learning is there going to be a different responsibility if the in-laws or parents are supplying support they go off to Colel and they're using meister money as opposed to having that conversation i want to be a partner with you we're going to have a is the person who is learning going to have a higher responsibility to be taking the learning more seriously because he has a partner now in the learning. Yeah, definitely. And I think that the it shouldn't have to come from the supporters to make this statement. I think that when the couple realize that their parents are going to be giving them a lot of support, they should sit down with the parents and say, we appreciate it. And we know that you're our shultif in the lifestyle that we're leading. And uh, we will try to be good shultif and make sure that you get the oh, the, what's it called? The, the most reward you can get because we're really going to take that support seriously. I think the, if the if full bang for your buck initiated by the by the couple, uh, the support will be well oiled. Very good. Well, Rav Lef, always, always, always a pleasure speaking with you. I always enjoy it. Always learn a lot. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Thank you for inviting me. Joining us now is Rabbi Dr. Eitan Eisen. Dr. Eisen is a clinical psychologist with a PhD from George Washington University and is also a musmach of Ritz. One of his many specialties is relationships and communication, which is basically our topic today. Rabbi Dr. Eisen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited. Dr. Rabbi Isaac, you know, I always get confused. Somebody who has smicha, who is a rav and also a psychologist, who I call doctor, rabbi, or both. So we're actually going to divide up our conversation between uh, some halacha, and then we'll talk more psychology. So I guess initially I'll call you Rabbi Eisen, and then I'll uh, morph over to calling you Dr. Eisen. It'll be appropriate for the conversation. I usually go by Eitan anyway. So, but either way, uh, anything is fine. Okay, very good. So, so we'll start with your rabbinic hat. So Rabbi Eisen, we're talking about Shana Rishona, which I, I guess we'll get your input certainly, but it may be a challenging time. Maybe it's a great time. I don't know. But let's start with the halacha. What's the source for having a Shana Rishona? Is this just a, a concept that we based on a klasuk or is they're really teethed, and, and what are the reasons for having a Shana Rishona? So this concept comes from a Pasuk. Uh, it's not something that was made up as a nice uh, idea at some point in history. This is, this is a Pasuk. The question of what the Pasuk means was a subject of debate in the Rishonim, but to read the Pasuk is a Pasuk in Parshish Kiseite. So I didn't translate it as I read it because the translation may depend on how it is understood by the Rishonim. Um, but there's basically the idea is when a, a man marries uh, a new wife, he should not go out to war and he should be available for his home and make his wife happy for the first year. And so the question is, is this a wartime mitzvah, which some of the Rishonim seem to understand, Rashi on the Psukim seem to understand it that way, that this is a wartime mitzvah related to maybe other mitzvahs related to wartime, which is that you don't want to have distracted soldiers, people who don't really want to be there, who really want to be home with their new house, their vineyard, their wife. And the truth is, for people following the Dafyomi, coming up fairly soon is when this mitzvah is mentioned, and it's in the context of a Mishnah about those other mitzvahs related to wartime. Many of the Rishonim, the Rambam and the Sefer Mitzvahs, uh, the Sefer Chinuch as well, understand that there is an additional aspect to this mitzvah, and it is not specifically related to wartime, and it is uh, relevant, and that is the Vesimachas Ishto, 
is a mitzvah say is counted in a safer mitzvahs, and it's also counted in a safer chinuch. And uh, even the Rishonim who understand it to be a wartime mitzvah, also, uh, some of them also assume that it's a mitzvah bismanazeh, and that is to make one's wife happy for the first year of marriage. Um, so the question that would be, okay, well, what's the reason for that? And before offering an explanation or what the Sefer Chinuch says, I think it's important to note that many of the poskim, a reason for a mitzvah, the Tame HaMikra, do not necessarily explain every halacha of that mitzvah, uh, nor does it exclude other ways of understanding the reasoning behind the mitzvah. And also many poskim remind us that um, Svara is given to explain the Tamei Amikra are not necessarily meant to enter into the halachic reasoning, or at least not to be the deciding factor in the application of a mitzvah. Okay, but with that said, um, the Sefer Achinuch, essentially, it's again, it's a little hard to translate based on contemporary language, but essentially says that a person is meant to spend the year at home with his new wife in order to get accustomed to her, to the relationship, uh, and with doing that, with spending the year, uh, um, he will both come to love her more and also be less interested in other relationships. In, in, and, let, me, let me just interrupt there. I was going to ask before, but it sounds like the it's incumbent on the man towards the woman, not the woman towards the man. And uh, that's interesting based on the Sefer Achinuch explanation that we're maybe more concerned about the man and want him to become more acclimated, used to, and in love with his wife uh, than reverse. So... I think there could be a few reasons for that. One is, this is the context of the Pasuk, is lo that if there it is a mitzvah on the man, so that is uh, part of the mitzvah. And so, you know, that the mitzvah is on the man to be involved in the wartime efforts. And so it could be, let's say, from the halachic side, or uh, as as the Mishnah or the Gemara and the Rishonim were understanding it, that it was in the context of that mitzvah of wartime applied also to later on. There could also be, I think that you see from the Rishonim, different understandings in how each a husband and wife enter into relationships and the challenges that each of them uh, may face or may bring. And so the idea that... Uh, a man, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, but prioritizing his relationship with a wife may be more crucial to uh, his commitment and loyalty to the relationship than vice versa. Although I would say that it probably, and this, as I was saying a moment ago, the particulars of the halacha do not necessarily match with the broader, let's say, values or scope of it. And so if it's important for the man, yes, the mitzvah is specifically for the man, but in terms of the relationship values that we will be talking about, I think it the reasoning and the svaras do similarly apply for women, even if they are not technically bound by the letter of the law in this particular mitzvah. Okay, interesting. Okay, I know I interrupted, uh, interrupted you in talking about the various reasons, so please, please get back. Well, to sure. That. So, so the question of how to understand the sefer chinuch um, in contemporary language. So there are some people who I have seen understand this in a way uh, that somehow by spending this year in the wife will diminish a person's yetsar har for znos um, for illicit relationships or something like that. I'm not. Sh- I think this may be along the lines of what the sefer chinuch is getting at. I don't think it's exactly what he's saying, and I think it actually is more than that. And if I can give a little bit of uh, to flesh it out uh, to some extent to give a little more context. So before a person is married, and certainly before they begin dating, their relationship with their spouse is 
of course, non-existent. Their spouse isn't there. They're not married. And so if you would ask the person what's important to you, so he may say, well, my learning is important. My friends are important, maybe working or school, whatever it may be that the person is doing in their life at that time, that is what they will describe as what is important. And so somehow the expectation is that after knowing this young woman or vice versa, after this woman knowing this young man for a few months, somehow this is meant to be the central human relationship in one's life when it wasn't present for 20 years, 25 five years, 30 years, whatever it may be. And so as I understand the Sefer Chinuch, the svara that he's giving applied through, let's say, contemporary language is that the reasoning behind the mitzvah is to develop a sense of loyalty and commitment to this relationship that is brand new and is now taking up or is meant to take up a large set, um, portion of a person's life. And so just for a moment to consider why this may be the case, Chazal and modern psychology describe a similar phenomenon about human nature. And that is when a person puts his own efforts into something and sacrifices for something, that act of prioritizing it uh, itself gives it more value and makes a person value it more, be more committed to it. And there's, um, just to mention, there's a beautiful Gemara in Brachos related to the story of Hannah and Shmuel, where Hannah says, Lenar hazeh hitzpalalti, and I won't go into the whole story, but essentially saying that, no, I want this child because this is the one I daven for. This is the child I put the effort into. And it's more, and this child is more valuable, valuable to me than what the Gemara is saying. Ailey was offering her a child who'd be even a bigger tzaddik and a bigger chacham. And Hannah was saying, no, no, this is the one I worked for. This is the one I daven for all those years. And in modern psychology, this, I think, would be referred to as the Ikea effect. For those familiar with Ikea, the store, you have to build it yourself instead of buying something that's already made. And there's this idea that people value something more, even though there's the labor cost, but because you put in the effort, you value it more. And so you might have argued that this deep commitment in a relationship comes from loving certain attributes about the person sharing certain values, agreeing to get married. And I think that is a part of it. But I think what the Sefer Achinos explanation is teaching us is that this is insufficient. And achieving the deep commitment requires putting in effort and it requires prioritizing this relationship over other important things. And it is specifically the act of choosing this relationship for the year and probably past the year, but the foundation of which is the first year and choosing this over other important things that fosters this loyalty and commitment and love between the husband and wife. So that's not exactly the words that the Sefer Chinuch use. That is how I think filtered through uh, modern language is how I've understood uh, the Sefer Achinoch's reason behind this mitzvah. Okay, so so Sefer Achinoch, in a nutshell, develop loyalty, develop the relationship, develop a long-term commitment from the beginning of the marriage. Yes, and that is done through the act of prioritizing this relationship over other things from the outset. Okay, very good. Are there other re- r- rationales brought by the Rishonim, the Achronim, or is this the primary one that's brought down? I, this is the primary one. Um, there are others, for example, as it relates to the wartime stuff, meaning not to be distracted uh, from doing the things that they would need to do in war. Um, and I'm not sure necessarily from that perspective to what extent that would be applicable to the relationship building that we would have uh, nowadays. Right. So so let's move on then to talk about the halacha of the requirements. If we're talking about the man is the primary responsible party here, what are his requirements? I guess we could say positive requirements towards the wife. Does he have to buy flowers? Does he have to, you know, whatever it may be, take her out to lunch once a week? Or in and, and addition, the limitations that he has, is he allowed to take a business? 
business trip? Is he allowed to go away to Kolel for a month at a time? Uh, what, what would he positively have to do to her? And what would he be prohibited from doing? Okay, so right. So as you just mentioned, there is the positive mitzvah, mitzvah assay of Sima Chesishto. And there is a los assay of lo yitzel or lo yavor And so that is a los assay limiting him to certain things. According to these Rishonim and Post, can we understand the mitzvah to be taught to be shayach nowadays? So in terms of the positive requirements, so that becomes a question. What does the simach es ishto mean? Uh, what does it mean to try to make her happy? So there are some poskim uh, who assume this relates to physical intimacy. And just like there's a mitzvah of Ona, this is an extension of that mitzvah to apply uh, specifically during the first year marriage. I think that most poskim seem to assume that this mitzvah is understood in a more broad way, and it literally means to do things that will make one's wife happy. And so, as you said, whether it's blind, buying flowers or going out to lunch, it's like, well, that will depend on what the interests or requests or desires of the wife may be. And so it's a little hard to determine exactly what that would look like. But um, and of course, this would be weighed against other factors such as financial constraints, other responsibilities in life um, that are also important. And I think way into developing, and we can talk about this in a little bit, developing a full relationship that sets the foundation for what life will look like. Uh, but the mitzvah would be, yes, doing things that will bring joy and happiness to the wife. And I think this is not directly related to this discussion, but a lot of times when we use the word happiness or v'simach, like sameach, there's the temporary fleeting happiness that is the result of a joyful experience in the moment. And there's the long-term life satisfaction uh, that we also refer to happiness. But I think this mitzvah, the way the postcom understand is it actually is the short-term, potentially fleeting happiness that is the requirement of the husband to do things to make his wife feel good. And again, within the constraints of uh, of life, financial constraints are certainly an issue, um, as well as other responsibilities may be there, but prioritizing, using the language we were using before, prioritizing this relationship and the wife's joy and happiness, particularly during this first year, I think is the requirement of this mitzvah as understood by many of the, or most of the um, contemporary postkin. Okay, so two points, two points. And number one is it's a subjective standard. It's not an objective standard. So the postkin don't say do X, Y, and Z, because it's going to depend on the subjective items that cause one's wife to ha- be misameach, to be to be happy. And number two is it's in light of the priorities. It's not an absolute obligation. It's going to be subjective on the husband. What are the demands of his time, the financial responsibilities, the learning responsibilities? But uh, this certainly has to be a priority given the other priorities. Yes. And I think as we think about other mitzvahs, I say that we talk about certainly, let's say, for example, tzedakah, there is a, you know, it's a mitzvah to give tzedakah, but there's a financial limit to it. And I think the post can discuss in many other mitzvahs I say that we perform there is a financial limit. Um, and that extends, according to some, either you know, also to time limitations to what is required to fulfill the mitzvahs I say. So strictly from this mitzvahs I say, there is a limitation to what would be required. And I would also say from a relationship perspective, there have to be boundaries in terms of what one spouse does for the other, because there are different needs and responsibilities in life that extend beyond the relationship in the home. But I think the value that we are learning from this mitzvah is that it needs to be, when we're weighing up the cheshben of of how do I prioritize my time and money? Part of it needs to be, well, how do I make my wife happy during this first year? Uh, And then I would also say, again, the value is that for the wife also to consider how her husband might be happy in the first year. And that's also an important consideration, not technically within this bounds of the mitzvah, but within what we are, uh, from a relationship perspective, what we would 
expect, you know, would be beneficial. In terms of the limitations, so one of the things you mentioned, like going to COA for a month or travel. So it it is also a little hard to determine. This may be a little bit more objective in the post of what is limited, but I think it's a matter of debate of specifically what the parameters are of that limitation. So it may be worth mentioning some of the factors that may be in play, even if exactly how it applies would require uh, a person to discuss with his RUV uh, or their family RUV exactly how it's applied. So one issue would be travel. Um, as you mentioned, so within travel, there's a question of, is this for a dvar mitzvah, which is also not necessarily clearly defined. Uh, but Talmud Torah is certainly something that's mentioned that it would potentially be mutter to travel for Talmud Torah or for learning. Uh, and that would be considered dvar mitzvah. There are other dvar mitzvahs that the post can mention. Uh, or is it recreational? And uh, recreational trips are more problematic. Business trips, it's interesting, the Rambam and other Rishonah mention it as problematic, although I've seen contemporary postkim be making and be lenient for various reasons uh, on the business side. But that's something that if we could explain it as the travel back then wasn't by plane. So it was much more of a commitment to be traveling as opposed to now you can get on a plane, go to Israel and come back within two days. Yeah. Well, and so that relates to the second issue is how long is this travel going to be for? And the postkim gives different time frames, whether it's an overnight trip or over a week long or over a month long. And different postkim will relate to uh, this issue a little bit differently. And so that's why I think it's important to have a rub to speak to about some of these issues going into uh, the Shona Rishona. Um, but yes, the travel now is different than it used to be. It's probably, I wonder, the, the postkim don't really discuss this, but it's also a little bit less, let's say, dangerous, generally speaking. And so if a person's traveling, the wife isn't at home worrying, like, is my husband going to be okay on this, you know, going on this road in a cattle car, you know, uh, or whatever, for however long, it's like, okay, they take a plane um, and they can come back. And and it's, there's less of a violation of the Simach Asishto because she's less worried about what may be going on with the husband as he traveled. A third issue is whether the wife is okay with it. And it's discussed in the post when the word is mechila. Is she mochel on this thing? And the question is, is she okay with it? And her being okay with it, does that matter? Which according to some of the posts, going to say it doesn't really matter if she's mochel. It's not because it's a mitzvah for the husband towards the wife and it's not related to her mechila. But I think most of the postcom seem to assume that if she's okay with it, that gives more it gives more room for the husband to, you know, to travel. Although from a relationship perspective, I think it's important to note there are times during, especially the first year of marriage, where a spouse may agree to things they don't really agree to because they want the other one to feel good, to not be upset, to feel like they are, you know, not going to get in the way of anything. And so if the issue is one of mechila, just because you say like, oh, is it okay if I travel to this thing? It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's, that's okay with me. It's like, she may not actually mean that. Um, and that's something I think relevant to keep in mind, particularly as it relates to this mitzvah. And then finally, I think as you were mentioning before, as it relates to travel, so travel nowadays is different. And I have not seen Postkin discuss this, but now that we can communicate by phone or by FaceTime, if you understand this mitzvah does not require physical contact. So it could be that a person can fulfill this mitzvah, the Simach Ishto, you know, similar to the questions of Nichum uh, Avelim and Bikor Cholim, can it be done by virtual means? And again, there's large discussions in the post about that. I haven't seen this discussed, but I think I, I wonder if that also enters into discussion about travel and some of the limitations. So fascinating. Fa- certainly, it should help on the Vesimach if you keep your wife posted how things are good doing and you stay in touch. And uh, hopefully that uh, would certainly help the situation. But why don't we move forward and, and change hats and go from Rabbi Eisen to Dr. Eisen and uh, have 
a discussion about uh, relationships and the like. So if we talk about the transition, dating seems to be of a more fun time. There are a lot of pleasures in dating and engagement as well, but marriage is the commitment and it's a very different time. You're going from maybe having roommates, uh, the the guys together and the, and the young ladies together, possibly depending on the situation. And now it's marriage and it's a lot more than a roommate situation. So What's that uh, transition like and how can Shana Rishona help in making that transition more smooth? Sure. So I think the there are many ways uh, that the transition to marriage is a beautiful thing. And there are also bound to be certain challenging aspects. And I think taking Shana Rishona seriously can be very helpful with some of the challenging things. On the relationship side, when dating, I think particularly in the firm world, although not exclusively, but in the firm world, while dating tends to be shorter, whether it's weeks or even a couple of months, um, the quirks that the other person brings to the relationship are not nearly as apparent as they will be uh, when you're actually setting up a home. If I can just share a personal anecdote, um, when we first got married, I was in the Gross Polo in Yerushalayim in a tiny apartment to the point where like to close the door, my, you know, we were in these tiny uh, Israeli mattresses and my feet hung off to the point where you couldn't open or close the door because, you know, that's how small the room was with the feet hanging over the end. And someone had gifted us a wonderful set of pillows, you know, the decorative pillows that go on a bed. And there were, I don't know, there must have been like 15 of them. And it's like every day when you're trying to get ready for bed. So you have to take off these 15 pillows and like stack them up, which takes up, you know, three quarters of the walking space in the room. And this was a difference between myself and my wife is that I thought it was not necessary. My wife enjoyed having these, you know, decorative pillows that made the very small and old apartment seem more uh, livable. And so, you know, these are the sort of things that when you meet somebody briefly or you're dating somebody for even a few months, you don't know that these are going to be differences of opinion. They're going to be disagreements. And so having this Shana Rishona, so there would be a tendency to say, all right, well, I will, you know, maybe I'll ignore this conflict or if I'm not in the home very much or I'm not looking to make my spouse happy or whatever it is. So uh, there's less incentive to try to work out how to compromise and what does the communication look like about how do we make this decision? How do we negotiate? How do we navigate some of these challenges? And the one I mentioned obviously is a relatively small one, but a thousand of things come of these sort of things come up over the first year of marriage, particularly as, you know, if please God, people get married and they have children, the wife is pregnant and there's a newborn in the house, uh, which actually the Barbanel says is part of the uh, purpose of this first year of marriage is, you know, it's the first year and then you have a baby around and there are other sort of needs, but that's, that's part of the rhythm of life. And there are a thousand of these sort of things that come up where figuring out how to communicate about it, how to negotiate, you know, who makes these decisions and how these decisions are made become uh, central. I think a second aspect that can be challenging is, and it may seem strange because marriage, is, a, you know, in, in Yadus is a beautiful thing, but there does involve some sort of sacrifice from singlehood, right? When people, even if married life is wonderful and it starts off great, there's a certain freedom that a person has when they don't have to consider the needs of another person on a day-to-day -day basis. And whether that's time in the base medrash or it's hanging out with friends or it's recreation, playing sports or traveling, whatever it may be, and reducing those kinds of things and hopefully not eliminating those other aspects of life, but certainly reducing them significantly can be challenging. And so this shutter we shown a time can be a nice opportunity to figure out how are these things balanced in life where both of you can be comfortable with you know the life each of you have outside of the relationship of the marriage and so you know for each partner to recognize that if the spouse has interest to take him or her out of the home whether it is their spiritual interests or recreational pursuits recognizing that those are not meant to be viewed as a like diminished interest in the relationship, but it's part of balancing the new relationship. 
Uh, and that is when taking Shana Rishona seriously is an opportunity for couples to be able to do effectively to lay the groundwork for the the challenges that may come up later in life. Okay, so it's interesting. Start when it's easy before you have the complications of children and figure out communication on how you're going to deal with issues, the small issues, hopefully, they're not the most significant issues. That's really comes when you have children. And then you'll be ready for the communication skills and the needs when the bigger issues come on. Now, it's interesting, you mentioned that you can have a thousand issues come up during Shana Rishana, like hundreds, thousands. What would you say are some of the more common issues that come up. If we have people listening, we have a lot of uh, Barkin listening and parents of people who are marrying off children. What are the big ones that you think come up more often that people should be aware of and hopefully can prepare going into marriage? So related to this issue of Shana Shona and prioritizing this relationship, I'd say the one of the large issues that come up is the relationship with parents or in-laws. And so why is that relevant? So the way I like to frame it is how in marriage do we transition from ma- to, into making this marriage relationship the most important one for each of the partners while still maintaining the appropriate kavod for the parents and in-laws? And you know, Baruch Hashem, I'm blessed to have uh, parents and in-laws where my wife and I, we both have wonderful relationship with each of them. That's not necessarily uh, the case, you know, for everybody's relationship. But I would say that this actually is the Ramban in Parsha's Bracious on the Pasuk of Al-Kein Yazov Ishes Avivyas Imo, V'davak Bishov V'hayu Levasar Echad. So Rashi has one explanation. The Ramban doesn't agree with Rashi. And he says, what does it mean that a person should leave his father or mother and leave to his wife? It means that he should sort of leave the relationship with his father and mother, the Korvasam, and that closest. That he should realize that the relationship with his wife is closer than with his parents. And that is a transition because there are all sorts of questions about boundaries and expectations and you know who does a person rely on for support. And of course, Hopefully, for people with good relationship with their parents, the parents remain an important relationship in their life. And from a matter an issue of Hubadava aim, that never ends. And I like to emphasize in any of the work that I do, the importance of fulfilling that mitzvah of Kibadava aim does not stop. And it's the role, certainly in a clinical sense, of helping people find ways to be Makayim that even if it's difficult in most circumstances. Um, but that, that I think is one issue that does come up and is something that couples need to work to figure out during that first year of marriage. And they're not going to solve it. As with any sort of conflict, you're not going to get rid of all conflict over the course you know, of this first year. But finding ways to transition to making this relationship the most important one to the exclusion of the relationship with either parents or other friends or siblings or whatever it may be. So, so the number one is build your relationship, know that that's number one, but still maintain relationships elsewhere. But when there's a conflict between the two, knowing that the relationship between husband and wife is is what's most crucial. Yes. And I think that's supported by the Ramban. And right. uh, other issues that come up are, well, about finances, uh, and that could be related to parents or in-laws, certainly when people get married younger, uh, and they're not necessarily financially self-sufficient when they get started, how exactly that works, what the plans are over time for earning money, is the husband planning on working, is the wife planning on working, where do they plan on living? Uh, And again, these are not necessarily issues that will be solved during the first year, but they're certainly potentially large issues that can uh, come up. Um, Physical intimacy is something that people have not done beforehand, 
And now there's this new aspect of the relationship that is very different and they may have different sort of expectations or understandings of how it works. And there may be some awkwardness or discomfort. And so figuring out uh, issues surrounding physical intimacy is something that the first year of marriage can be uh, very important to use that time for. Um, differences of how to run the home in terms of organizational habits, uh, as we were talking about, you know, the throw pillows and that sort of stuff, but all sorts of things like how, you know, uh, yeah, general issues of organization is often a difference between husband and wife that they, they are not necessarily aware of before they get married. And then I'd say other issues of expectations with communication. So for example, there are people in the Hasidic community where communication between husband and wife on many issues is just not part of the expectations for the relationship. And they can have beautiful homes and beautiful relationships without so much communication. And there are other, I think in more contemporary times, there's this trend towards more communication between a husband and wife. And so figuring out what types of things we communicate about, how it's communicated. And I would also say communicating honestly is important. I think as we mentioned before, there's a tendency not to want to say something that would be disagreeable to the spouse. And in some ways, I know this is sort of a strong statement, but that's not honest communication, right? And so figuring out how to say something nicely, of course, right? That's part of being a human being. And to the to one's wife, it's especially important. That's your closest relationship. But figuring out how to communicate honestly about what your perspective is, about what your needs are, about what you're uncertain about, what was bothering you, uh, about what you're appreciating about your wife, saying positive things in an honest and genuine way. Uh, honest communication is something that if that can be developed, as you said, during the easier times, that will provide a foundation for when things get more difficult. And there's a tendency to avoid discussion and confrontation where you have the confidence to be able to communicate honestly and openly through disagreement or conflict that may arise later in the relationship. No, very good. And and positive communication also, being being a yeah. positive person. And when, as you mentioned, when compliments are warranted or even if not warranted, give the compliments, give the compliments. So there, there are a lot of common issues that come up. I'd like to to end off with, with one final question. I know this could be the subject of an entire show, but if you can walk us through quickly, three pointers, three pointers for, for newlyweds, because it sounds like there's a lot to deal with and there is a lot to deal with. How do you start off a marriage successfully? So three, three your top three, what would you give to newlywed? Top three. Okay. So I'd say number one, come into the marriage with an open mind, patience, and compassion, right? There are some times where I've seen people come in with certain expectations about, I'll use just one example that has come up a lot, you know, the husband's minion attendance and the wife will get upset like, oh, he's not attending this minion or he's not doing this. And, you know, coming into to the relationship of the marriage with an open mind, patience, and compassion allows you to build this foundation of communication and commitment and loyalty from a place of feeling supported uh, and confident in the relationship with the other person. So things will be different than you expect. And first, be aware of that. Be yeah. aware. Yes. Be flexible. Yes. Flex yes. Flexible is a, is a wonderful word to use here. And I think, yes, that is certainly part of it. I'd say the second uh, is that related to what we were talking about, when balancing different demands of life, the relationship with your spouse does not trump all other needs but it should enter into the cheshben prominently. And so both of those things are important. The idea that it enters into the cheshben is the mitzvah that we were talking about, but also that it does not trump everything else is something I think for both spouses to recognize that there does need to be room for other important things in life. Uh, and so both of those things come together. But I think that that is uh, one pointer with two different sides to it that can be very important. 
And the third thing that I would say, and this I hesitate a little bit because it may require a little more time to explain what it means and how to balance it. Um, but the longer I've had this role of working with couples, the more convinced I am of the truth of this idea. And I think it's consistent with the Rambam when he describes responsibilities of a wife to a husband and a husband to a wife. And that is as follows. Your spouse is not responsible for your happiness. And and you are responsible for your happiness. And what that means is that you are not responsible for your spouse's happiness because that's your spouse's responsibility. Now, what you are responsible for is treating your spouse spouse with respect, kindness, patience, honor, flexibility. And that is what your spouse owes you as well. But you cannot control whether your spouse is in a good mood or a bad mood or whether she feels fulfilled in life or not fulfilled in life. And I know that some people have a reflexive reaction against this sentiment, but I think that when people really allow it to sink in, you a person realizes that it really has to be true. And the sooner that that is figured out, the better the marriage will be. And so the responsibility is how I am towards my spouse. I can't be responsible for the outcome of how my spouse receives it, receives that if I do that in a good faith, well-intentioned effort, and they do the same towards me, um, that's my responsibility, but not for the outcome of their mood or their emotional state in the moment. So I know that that's kind of a long pointer and that's a little bit complicated and may differ from some of the advice that people receive as they're getting married. Like, oh no, you have to make sure. And even this myth, they say, you have to make sure of a Simach Asishto. And it's actually not the case. You have to do things that you think will make her happy or do things that will likely be... Uh, consistent with that, but whether she is happy or not, or whether you're happy or not, when she tries to do things for you is actually not in your control. So you need to put in the effort. You need to put in the effort of the proper effort. And it needs to be not maybe what you think will make her happy, but you should get her input as to what will make her happy. But in the end of the day, if she's not happy, I need to keep on trying, but uh, it's not it's not viewed as a failure. Well, and to quote a Chazal, lo alacha ham more. You know, uh, right? Like you have to put, as just as you said, you have to put in the effort, but it may not have the outcome that you were hoping it has. But uh, your responsibility is the effort, and if each of you do that mutually, then things will end up good. And I should—the last thing I wanted to say that I didn't mention before is this conversation is focusing on relationships that are uh, healthy and positive. What we're not talking about are relationships that are abusive or toxic, which have different sort of chashbonos and different sorts of things that I think are relevant and come up. And I think it's important to frame the conversation in that kind of way, because um, abusive relationships, when um, a person sort of is feels like they are serving the needs of the other person and that is not reciprocated at all, and there is a power dynamic of control and whether it's physical abuse, certainly, but also emotional abuse, it's a very different conversation. So uh, the context of this conversation really is healthy relationships, developing healthy relationships uh, in ways that is consistent with how the Torah and Chazal and contemporary psychology understand this is how the foundation of relationships look to serve the interests of family life, raising children in a Torah way, in a emotionally and psychologically healthy way down the line. Very good. I think that's a very important proviso. 
Thank you so much. So Rabbi Dr. Eisen, we've covered the gamut, I think. Uh, certainly there's a lot more to discuss, but those were great concepts, great pointers, and certainly a tremendous amount to learn, I think, from everyone that's listening, be it somebody who is starting to date, somebody who's a newlywed, parents of children who are dating, grandparents of children who are dating. It doesn't matter. These are important concepts. And I really want to thank you for all those insights. And thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak about this important issue that hopefully every Jewish person faces at some point in their life. Uh, and so hopefully this is something that can be useful and helpful to people as they consider for themselves or their children or grandchildren uh, how to build a successful and healthy marriage. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Joining us now is Danielle Frank. Rabbi Frank is a licensed marriage and family therapist and also a dating coach. He assists singles and couples, both pre and post marriage. He is also the author of a number of books. How can I change for heaven's sake? Sounds very interesting. Also, Rav Yaakov Weinberg talks about Chinuch and he's in the middle of another one, should come out hopefully soon, the making of a dynamic duo. Rabbi Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. Let's start out with the basics. What's the purpose of Shana Rishana? You can talk halachically and uh, psychologically. Why do we have a Shana Rishana and how should it be used by both the new Chassan and the Kala? Okay, a logical place to start, um, especially because any questions that will come up afterwards would have to make reference, refer back to what the goal of it is, uh, and I guess answer the questions based upon what we're trying to accomplish in Shana Rishona. I mean, I like to, you know, for establishing a, what we hope to be a Baisnema Yisrael, we do want to look to see what Chazal have to say with what uh, the purpose of Shana Rishona is. And uh, a popular Maramokam is the Chinuch, Tavkov Peibes, where he talks about that the purpose of Shana Rishona, I'm just going to give it as a paraphrase, everyone can look it up on their own, is essentially just to really get used to your wife. Spend a year with her, and presumably the other way as well, husband, uh, wife to the husband, get used to her teva, get used to her nature, um, and uh, allow her image to be ingrained within your mind, until the point that uh, after that year, um, there is no other woman in your life but this woman. And conversely, this this husband. So that's what the Chinuch says. And just to maybe elaborate a little bit from the way I understand it uh, and my experiences working with couples, is that what the Chinuch is really saying is that the first year of marriage, the goal of it is to create soulmates. And I don't mean S-O-U-L mates, which is its own conversation of what exactly that means, but it means S-O-L-E, that we really need to be able to get to a point where we're each other's soulmates. Now, I'll just tell you just to, to understand, you know, how this plays out in life, you know, just kind of like a dramatic story. But a woman once came to me. It was uh, not a client. It was uh, just someone that uh, was coming to my classes. And she she uh, she told me that she had an odd conversation with her son-in-law who had been married to her daughter for well over a decade. And he said to her, he said, you know, your daughter needs therapy. Can you pay for it? So, so uh, she's saying like... You know, she was more like focused on the paying part of it. But I was thinking like, your daughter? And I said, you know, at, at what point does a wife go from being your daughter to my wife? The answer? Yes, when it deals to, to, when it deals to payments, uh, it's your daughter. Oh, well, exactly. Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So what's the answer to that? Well, well, I mean, really, the answer is it's, it's my wife. The moment I, you know, consummated at the chuppah, the marriage, you know, it was the moment the, the chuppah takes place and we're married, then it's my wife. Uh, okay, that may be technically and maybe it doesn't really settle in, but what the chinuch is saying is, by the end of that year, she's my wife and he's my husband. And when we can get to that point when it's so clear, we have we have a fight where we're not doing so well, but this is my wife. I mean, this is my husband. I mean, just getting to the mindset that, uh, you know, there's another woman that's walking you know, past me or is at, at uh, my Shabbos table. and But this is my wife. The distinction becomes really clear if Shana Rishon is done right. 
Okay, so to define soulmate, S-O-L-E, is this is the only one to the exclusion of all others. Correct. I have a relationship with this person of the opposite gender that has dynamics and um, its own dynamics that are unique to that relationship. Um, and it, and it, it runs the gamut. It isn't just one particular interactive experience, but it runs the gamut of things that are unique to our relationship how we refer to each other, how we uh, spend our time with each other. It, there needs to be an emergence of a uniqueness between our relationship and any other person that I have of that opposite gender. All right, now, we, we could understand the Shana Rishona as similar to a non-Jewish honeymoon, although a honeymoon maybe is a week or two weeks or maybe a little longer. We get a whole year, a whole year honeymoon. Let's go on an extended fun trip together. Maybe we stay local or we maybe head off to Yushalayim or wherever the uh, location is. Is that the concept or is there something more going on here? Okay, let's 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 distinguish between, uh, I guess, honeymoons and, and Shana Rishona. I guess that's what your question is. So let, let me start off. Let me start off by making something clear about this. Uh, I'm very much in favor of couples getting away and spending time with each other at the beginning of the marriage during the, the uh, intense years of child-rearing, it's essential. Some people I've met have been married 20 years and never got away alone, which is, which is a, a real big problem. And if I meet a couple like that, my, one of my first goals is to get them on a vacation to experience themselves, experience you know, life uh, with, uh, with each other. So I, I do believe it's very, very important. I mean, again, as life gets busy and, and uh, we've got responsibilities, we need to learn how to master the 24 to 48 hour getaway. And that's, that could also serve a purpose for, for a few months. So I'm very much in favor of that as a, as a way to build relationships. Relationships. However, is that what Shana Rishona is? I don't think so. I don't believe we have any sources that say that for a couple to bond, they need to be spending a year running around and going on vacations. We, we don't find that people who reflect back uh, when they're having trouble 10 years down the line, they look back and they, they don't usually say, I think the reason why we're having problems today is that we didn't have a really good honeymoon. I don't think they're looking back and they're saying, you know, our limousine wasn't up to par when we left the wedding. Nobody really looks back to that as the source of their problems. On the other hand, what Shana Rishona is, and I, I'd like to use a parallel from the world of psychology because it's become so popular that I think if we just discuss that for a moment, it'll Shana Rishona will become really, really clear. And the insight of Chazal, once again, will emerge as being way ahead of its time. We know that in child development, that there are stages. And that the first stage of development is attachment, the attachment stage. And that means that during that those formative years, very early years, the parent responsibilities to be fully available to the child. The purposes of making a healthy attachment, a secure attachment. The child knows I'm there for you. You're going to go into the big bad world out there soon. But for the moment, you know that you've got an anchor in the parents. And once attachment is achieved, then they move into areas of differentiation where it goes to exploration and other things. The terrible twos and etc. Marriage follows a similar cycle and that the beginning of marriage requires attachment. There's a healthy attachment, an availability of one another, an exclusivity of one another that is more than it'll be the rest of your life. What the Chinuch is really saying is that we need to establish the attachment with this couple, that after that, we'll figure out what goes on. For the, you know, in Halach, it's one year as opposed to two years, let's say, in the stage of attachment. And since today, a lot of discussion out there, a lot of raid in the world of psychology is attachment disorders. People are going to look back and say, the reason I struggle in my life in various areas is because I didn't get a healthy attachment. I do think couples, when they look back after 10 years and see challenges, a lot of times they'll look back and say, we think it's because we didn't do Shana Rishana rights. We did not do the stage of attachment properly. So as they will not go back and say, again, I've never heard it. Could be someone out there has heard this before. They will not go back and say, we didn't take enough vacations in that first year. 
we didn't have enough fun that year, they will go back to say we didn't bond properly in that first year. So let me add one more point to this. And that is that even though the focus of Shona Rishona is quality, qualitative and quantitative time with each other, at the same time, we learn from COVID that it doesn't mean we spend 24 hours a day with each other. When it's, when it's work hours, it means we work, which means to say that if the husband is learning, he's out working in the base medrash. The woman does her work in the course of the day. They both launch into life, into their respective lives after breakfast or whenever they launch into the life. They might come back for a break during lunch, but they go back out to work. And then when they return, they spend their evenings together. But it isn't to be taken to say, like, I guess Shana Rishon is just look at each other for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The integration of life, the integration of responsibility needs to take place, not even during the Shana Rishon, especially during Shana Rishon. You know, we're, we're developing our character at the same time. So that balance is what we're trying to strike. So we so, work, work, but we connect, we're connecting. So balance and healthy attachment, not unhealthy and unrestricted attachment. Exactly. Well said. Yeah. In fact, there was a, there was a rub that uh, had a questions and answers during COVID. I thought it was a brilliant answer. They asked him, uh, it was during COVID. They said, uh, should couples um, use this time to spend, should couples use the quarantine as a time to spend to get, spend time with each other or not? And his answer was, depends on the couple. If spending that kind of time together will help their relationship, fine. But that's not natural. And if it's not going to be good, so then, you know, have your breaks within the house itself. You know, we all thought that was going to be great. We thought, wow, COVID, you know, COVID couples get to quarantine. But young couples that got married during, during COVID that were quarantined created a lot of problems. And especially if they quarantined with their in-laws and set its own set of problems. So it isn't about quarantining. We go out to life. We engage life. We, we were productive during that Shana Rishana outside of our house. We land back in the nest and we have an avoda in the nest. That's your priority. Leave the cell phone in the car. That's one of the significant ways of doing that. Correct. Yeah. Uh, interesting. So if we can define further healthy attachment, not just attachment, but healthy attachment. So if a couple comes to you and says, uh, we're deciding what to do next year, and we have the option of going off to Yushalayim, and uh, the husband will learn in yeshiva for half a day, and then we'll be able to go out on Rechov Paran and go to the bagel shop and meet friends and have coffee. There doesn't have to be Rechov Paran. That's simply an example, but whatever the parallel may be, and have a wonderful year together and attach, or should we maybe stay local? Should we stay in, in Lakewood and learn there? Or should my husband, he's has a choice between pushing off work a year or two or going to work now and we'll dive right in and have the normal challenges of life. What would you advise them is going to be the healthiest for healthy attachment? Should it be going off and having a more enjoyable, maybe fun year, or is it starting with more normal pressures and challenges that they may encounter in their lives and they'll be able to, I'm, I don't know if I'm asking a leading question here or not, but uh, what would you advise them? What would you, because I don't know the answer to this, but what would you, would you advise them to do? Oh gosh, I have to wrap my head around that one. There are a lot of moving parts to that question. And if we add on the funding of it, you know, who, if, if, it's, uh, if it's going away, it's being funded by the parents and the in-laws. We don't want to get any complaints by our listeners saying you had the title of the show as should you head off to uh, Ramat Eshkol and Yerushalayim on the parents tab. So if we could address that issue as well, I will happily turn the mic over to you now. All right. Uh, like I said, you just added another moving part to this question. So I'll do the best I can. Help me out along the way if I'm not, not, not hitting the points. But uh, I think I have to start 
with a, a tale of two couples. And then from there, we'll, uh, we'll uh, unpackage things and welcome to ask follow-up questions to it as well. Okay. You know, for every, for every painful, painful story, there's, there's always a, you know, an encouraging one. So I want to share those two. One of them is someone I'm very close with, this goes back a number of years, was at a, at a vart. And he went to the chassin and uh, he just said, like, where are you going to, you know, where are you planning to start your marriage? And he said, we're going to do the Ramat thing. So in his innocence, or maybe not so much, uh, this person I'm very close with said to him, do you mean Ramat Eshkol or Ramat Bechemesh? To which he said, <laughs> Ramat Eshkol, of course. To which this person I'm very close with said to him, you know that it's much more expensive to live in Ramat Eshkol than Ramat Bechemesh. To which he said, and hold on to your seats here, that's not my problem. It's my father-in-law's problem. End of exhibit A. So what is, what, you know, with whatever comes up for you when you hear a story like that, it's like, what's, what's going on over here? So I just want to make it really clear. Uh, I'm not the guy to ask how a couple should start their marriage, whether in learning or whether in working. Obviously, it would make sense to consider where that person and those people are at in making that decision, where they should go, whether it should be in Ramada Shkol or some other place in Eretz or in Lakewood. Again, there should be an evaluation of the factors of what that community offers and what where that couple is at, but whatever is, and whether one needs to go out to work, but whatever is chosen, there's a mindset that a couple needs to have. Now, I, I, I give more credit to couples than maybe they give themselves. Getting married is no small thing. I mean, it's a pretty adult behavior. It's, it's not, it's not fun. I mean, it's, it's, it's real work. It's, uh, you're, you're, you're challenging yourself to a kind of relationship that you've never had before. And I just recently saw that Lotovias Avimovado, that uh, I believe was based in Cleopatra. I'm sorry, I didn't do research ahead of time. But I, I, I'd heard one way to understand what Tobias and Mavado is that it's not possible to be good outside of marriage. Now, that's very insulting to singles. So, what do you mean? There are very good singles out there. It's true. But there's no dynamic like the relationship with, in marriage. It takes it to a whole different level. The level of sharing and, and other orientedness just doesn't exist anywhere else. Then kids come along and they extend the challenge. So it's a, it's a very adult decision we're making with, with consequences. If we do it right, we, we get great returns. If we don't, don't do it well, there's a lot of pain. So going into a Shonri Shonen and establishing a foundation for what's going to be a very challenging and hopefully very rewarding relationship is not, is not something you think that kids do. We have to really be thinking about that and, 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 and make our decisions on the basis of that understanding. I think it's clear that at the, at the heart of character, you know, we'll ask people like, what does it take to be ready to be married? So I like to say to be a giver, and, and which I think I still think is true. But it, but but it's predicated on a person who takes responsibility. Like I take responsibility for for the things around me. And if I and if I took on a wife or a husband, I'm taking responsibility for that person, that relationship. Now, if you think about somebody who would say, "I'm going to do the Ramad thing," it's not my it's not my issue. It's my father's issue. I mean, that's a failure and the report card of responsibility. I mean, this is your life. So what does it mean that it's on someone else's tab? Now, the fact that someone is getting paid for the year and getting a credit card, that doesn't, that doesn't fly in the face of responsibility. I know that when I was learning in Kolel, I had a secular relative that I needed to explain what it means to be able to, be, to study for a living. And I just said, you know, they understood research. You know, there's fellowships out there. And people are researching cures. I was involved in research. And that made sense. Okay, so you're doing research. I get it. You know, you're hired as a researcher. So that's right. So we're researching. We're researching the word of God, and which is fine. And, and someone wants to support that and wants to, to, to invest in that. So... It can be very healthy. But on the receiving end, I need to see myself as an investment. I think the couple needs to see themselves as an investment. That's a huge piece of responsibility. If we're taking it and being a, bur- a financial burden, that's that's very adolescent. But as we transition to adult life, 
we see the money coming to us as an investment to us, which means we make very important decisions about how we use the time that we're being paid for. Do, do we spend a weekend on a vacation when we're supposed to be researching? We're being we're being invested in to be researchers. Now there are going to be shop us off, so we're going to have time to be able to breathe, but and, and to bond in other ways. But our decisions are going to be based upon the mindset that I don't want to be a burden; I want to be an investment. Very interesting. I say let, let me recap where we are right now. Uh, point number one was soulmates, meaning exclusivity, and that should be the focus during Shana Rishana. It should be based on number two, working on healthy attachment, not just attachment, but healthy attachment. Now, now we've added on. It is a year to learn responsibility, responsibility to each other, not only to each other, but also to relatives, parents, in-laws who may be supporting us. And accordingly, we should not simply be a, uh, a place that money is, uh, is, is put on or, or flushed on, but invested in. And in other words, when it comes to an investment, the in-laws are investing in us in order to build our lives together, in order to build a more functional and solid ground for the future. Exactly. And, and if I could just add two quick caveats, and I want to tell you that good story at the end of it to balance it out. But caveat number one is, even with this model of investment, parents should not be requesting annual reports about what's being done. Even though in the model, it will make sense. You know, you want to check out your investments, you know, graph it, see how it's going. But from a relationship point of view, it doesn't work. So although it might make sense logically, but I don't want parents to walk away thinking like, Okay, we're going to play this out like an investment. And we have to be really, really careful about that. I think it's the, it's the couple that needs to see that more as the investment necessarily than the parents. At the same time, a couple might say, my parents don't mind. I know they want to just go out and have a good time. That, that could throw this whole thing off. But, but I think that, uh, that the couple needs to do it because that's the right thing to do. I don't need to be held accountable. We're, we're adults. We're mature. We understand the value of money, what it means to have somebody give us our credit card. And so from our own sense of personal responsibility, we step up to the plate. And that's a transition to the story I wanted to tell about the, the good side of things. It's a true story that really happened. And many people don't believe it actually happened, but I know it did because I know the father who told me the story that he was supporting his kids who were learning and he would send a check every month. He said, one day you got a letter back in the mail, return to sender. So he opened it up and in it was the most recent check that he had written to his kids. And with a little note, saying, mommy and tati, mom and dad, whatever they call them, we really, really appreciate the investment you made in us over the last whatever time it was. At this point, we think that between tutoring and anything else, I finally got a job now, and I think we can pull off the budget on our own. So we're sending you back the check. Uh, we're expecting to have a child in a few months. If we need more at the time, we'll, we'll, we'll re- respectfully request it of it. But at the moment, we're okay. Those are now, people I that hope- learn... They learned responsibility. Now, I don't know if you believe that story, but I, I know that that story is true. A return to send, returning a check because we're okay now. I don't, I'm not entitled to the check. I appreciate the support. We're okay now on our own. Amazing. Really amazing. Okay, let's change a little bit gears now. We've talked about uh, Shana Rishana and, and the purposes of Shana Rishana. How should the uh, couple spend time during that year, for example? Is it a time to be spending with other couples who are newlyweds, uh, other uh, individuals that were their friends and they are still single? Should they be having them over for Shabbos, having them stay over for Shabbos? Should they get involved in Kirov or is this more of a focus on each other during the year? Well, I, I, I think we've already established that it is a year to focus on each other. But I think since you asked the question, maybe it's just important to take a step back for a moment and and just reflect on the sobering reality that we're all aware of, which is, of course, the proliferation of, of early divorces. Early divorces of people that are we know, friends of ours, uh, um, 
people just like us. They went to seminary with us. We were, we were roommates. It's my sibling. It's it's my neighbor. But we're all familiar with early divorces of people who are good people, not crazies. That's how oh, I get it. I knew that was going to happen. That's how people would like to say, just to distance it for themselves. They might say things like, oh, yeah, but you know, but she had, you know, I, I could see how maybe that would have been. But that little, yeah, I could see is probably just as much alive in you as it is in her. Maybe in a different way. So the sobering reality is that it's we're relationship challenged somehow or other today, and making marriage work is not is not easy to the point that people are celebrating six month anniversaries and they're serious about it. You know, we're together six months and we're actually doing okay. So I therefore think that that any decision that's made to compromise the exclusivity that we discussed before has to be has to be run through a wise, older, preferably a, a, a das Torah who understands what a first year needs to look like in the sense of the bonding and attachment that we spoke about before. It's way too risky. We, we can't make decisions based on emotion. We can't make decisions based on adolescent emotions. We can't think about having people over because now we get to host the chill. Um, we have to be careful with that. And and so therefore I say, you know, if, you're, if your intention is to do kiruv, if your intention is to um, execute your values towards hachnasas orchem, Spend a little time baking as a couple. Secure yourselves. It can wait. It's on your agenda, and it'll happen as soon as you complete Yeshana Rishana. You'll then go back and reflect on it and be a solid couple that knows how to responsibly host people who are maybe your age, singles, um, how to be able to run the Shabbos table in a way that a baked, fully baked couple would be able to run their Shabbos table. So it's it, it's a real judgment and an important judgment because the fallout of not making that judgment accurately could be very painful. Mm-hmm. Yes. A lot even, to think about. And as I say in the industry, I may have the oven. A lot to think about. But let's change gears a little bit. Uh, talking about the challenges. I know we could talk about a lot of the challenges of transitioning from being single to dating and then getting married. But let's talk about one in particular, the girl acclimating to the Hassan's family and the, and the boy acclimating to his Kala's family. What are some of the adjustments there? What are some, what are some of the challenges and, and how are they dealt with? Well, there are there are many many challenges that come, and um, as a result of this committing to, as I said before, like now we're raising the level of um, of the challenge of relationships to take somebody on like a spouse, but at the same time we're taking on more than just the spouse. We're taking on the spouse's family. Now, you're not, we're not marrying the spouse's family, but we do need to start relating to them. You know, the, one of the early you know, cute discussions has, is with uh, in relation to what do you you know what do you call your in laws? Um, anywhere from people who do it, you know, I guess right off the bat, they, they'll say mom, dad. Um, a sit-in would say things like schwer and schwiger. Others won't say anything. They'll just cough or do some other suggestion or just wait till the in law turns their way. Okay, however it goes, it goes. You know, I don't think we make such a big deal about that one decision. However, but the meaning behind that decision, you know. Uh, how can I call her mom when my mother's my mom? All of a sudden, we become very sentimental. Like, I can't betray my mother. So, um, but it's it's hard to take on another mother figure, father figure. Hard to take on a, a new way of doing things, a new Shabbos table, uh, new new deficits. I mean, look, you know, we grew up with our parents, so we kind of got to, we figured out over 20, 25 years how to handle my mother's an egg, but I, I get it. You know, my mother's an egg. I know what to do. I just kind of like say, yeah, 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 mom, and it's over. But I have a new m- mother who has either the same floor, which I've not adjusted to, or a, a different floor. 
Maybe she doesn't nag me enough. Maybe she looks like she's very remote, distant, and I, I can't deal with that. So I have to go through that whole process again of being able to accommodate somebody different. Th- those, those, are the, those are some of the adjustments. And, and like I said earlier, getting married is an adult decision. It, it means that you're ready, to, you're, you're, you have enough um, competence in the area of relationships, just enough to be able to navigate these challenges. It won't just be with a spouse. It'll be with the spouse's family. How do I become more open and accepting? And how would I relate? People who are really not ready to relate to differences may struggle in their marriage. They may, you know, they may actually start to cancel extended family and say, I'm not going to your parents anymore. When really there was ways of working it through. And you said, look, you're an adult, work it through, figure out, get advice about how to handle in-laws that act in one way or a different way. So that's our responsibility. We take on this, these levels of relationships. So flexibility is the key word on this one. Flexibility, knowing going in that it's not going to be the same. It's going to be different. It's a transition. You have to get used to it and you have to be flexible. I would say it has to do with number one, the fundamental shift is I'm decentralizing. It's no longer about me. Before I was married, even if I was a nice guy and I did a lot of chesed voluntarily, now I put myself in a position where I committed to having to respond to others. So I'm becoming decentralized. And number two is, as you say, flexibility, becoming flexible. And I think number three is also being able to take perspective. Like, I wonder why my mother's ha- my mother's having such a hard time letting go. You know, what must it be like for a father-in-law when his daughter now walks off into the sunset with another guy? You know, to be a little bit more like understanding of their perspective. That's an adult skill that we hope that young married couples learn quickly. Right. So let's flip this around. If we can ask one more question. We've been talking about the adjustment, the transition for the Hassan and Kala. How about the adjustment for their respective parents? What would you say are the challenges and how should the in-laws adjust to make sure that this new individual will be absorbed and transitioned in the healthy way into their family? Well, it's, I can give the long answer, the short answer. So I'll try to go somewhere in between. Hashem has his ways of keeping us on our toes that we can't get complacent. As recently, we started the shift away from Meshachorach Medegashem. We all know the challenge, those first 30 days, making sure we get it right. And sometimes then the mistakes we make and having to do it, when I say over again, and we struggle so hard to get through those 30 days till we're finally assumed to do it right. When before you turn around, it's back to Sukkot again. We have to go through all over again, inserting Mashiach Medegashem. Just when we finally figured it out, we're on to the next stage. And parenting is the same thing. We start off the stage of attachment. We smother our kids. And that's the right thing to do, actually, is smothering in the first two years. But then comes differentiation when the, the time of weaning is not just when it comes to nursing, but it's you kind of wean them off of that uh, dependent relationship and help them start to develop independence from that age. You have to let go. Then they come bar mitzvah. You have to let go even more. Our, our parenting has to become more, has to be more of a finesse job than it is a control job. We let go of control and we have to be wiser. Teenagers, they go to Israel, they come back, you know, everything starts to get more and more. And finally at the chuppah, that's when it's over. Active parenting is over at the chuppah. Finished. But can I just say this? No, it's over. You can't. Now you step back and you watch the product of, of your chinuch make their decisions as adults. You have, we have to let go. We could see things we're very concerned with. We could see things we're concerned about, but when we discuss it with another person, they might say, let it go. Let it go. Take a deep breath and just love them and just accept them and daven your heart out for them. That's a very challenging shift. And I think as parents, when we marry off our kids, we have to really ingrain it in our heads. Our role shifted, but in a very radical way. I mean, there was a development that happened along the way. So it wasn't, it really shouldn't be so extreme, but the fact that it's, really virtually no active parenting at that point is very, very hard for parents. So if we know that, we can be a little wiser about how we keep our distance from term, in terms of being 
active influences, but we show as much love as we possibly can. And with the hope that maybe they'll come to us and ask us for advice. Then it's by invitation only for the most part. Then feel free. Once you're invited, you can give advice, but until then, bite your well, tongue. Well, once you're invited, you still have to be careful, obviously. You know, it's not, uh, you know, I open the floodgates. By the way, now that you've asked me this, I'll go back to the last five years, what you've done when you've come to visit us. The mess you leave behind, you don't help, you don't know. Like, and by the don't way, you can't try to behave. You should get, tell them, send them to therapy. On don't your go there. Don't go there. <laughs> Rabbi Frank, I want to thank you so much for joining us. A uh, really important end to our conversation that the parents should understand what the children are going through and the children should understand what the parents are going through. And that mutual understanding will certainly facilitate a much easier transition for the respective sides. Yes. Amen. Joining us now is Mrs. Penina Flug, LCSW. Mrs. Flug is a couples therapist in private practice. She focuses on emotionally focused couples therapy. She also teaches marriage enhancement courses and workshops to engaged and newlywed couples. And she also trains others to teach these workshops as well. Mrs. Flug, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Well, thank you so much. Well, Marriage, you know a little bit about that. Uh, so that's what you do day in, day out, uh, coaching couples. Getting married is a huge adjustment, obviously, both for the new husband and the new wife. So in your experience, do new marriages typically start off smoothly? Is this something that you can just get into and it's going to run smoothly? Or do we have oftentimes rocky starts and a difficult transition? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, I don't have data here, but I can tell you what helps marriage go smoothly. First of all, as we know, many marriages start off well and go smoothly. But we also see, um, unfortunately, so many early divorces in our community. And what I'm noticing is that everybody is so upset and kind of talking about this. Did you hear all these 20 year olds getting divorces yet? Unfortunately, nobody's saying what can we do to prevent this, right? So I don't have the data to say how the percentages, the percentage of which marriages, I don't have the data to say the percentage of which marriages go smoothly and how many start off rocky. But we know many start off smoothly and many don't, right? So what can we do to, to, what can we do to set up our children for healthy marriages that start off well and that go smoothly? And I think that this has to do with us rethinking the whole shidduch and engagement process, right? So um, I'm not trying to change the shidduch process. I know it works for many. However, I do think that we have to rethink some of what we're doing because there is a sense of urgency to to get children married. The children feel it, the parents see it. And I think that the problem is, is that we're not looking at the big picture and saying what is going to make our children successfully married, happily married in five years, right? We're just kind of trying to get them married, right? Sometimes it's the Sharchanim are pushing, pushing, oh, well, you're up to date 10, you should know by now, right? Um, And sometimes it's the parent, right? So, So what helps a marriage start off on the right foot? What helps a marriage go smoothly? So I think what helps is that as parents, we, and I'm a parent of children in their 20s also, and I see this every day in my practice, as parents, we need to guide our children through the dating process and through the engagement. It's not just about getting them engaged or married. We need to start when they come home from Israel for the year, talking to them about what does healthy marriage look like? What's their role? Um, the other thing that, and so what helps these 
these these young couples start off well is some self-awareness, communication skills, relationship role models, right? From their parents or from a mentor. So they, they need to know what they're getting into and they need coaching as to how to deal with the issues that will be coming up. It shouldn't be that you go in blind, not knowing know what to expect. So maybe we can look into that a little bit when it comes to newlyweds. What are they going to have to get used to? What changes and adjustments are they going to need to make? And accordingly, how are we going to coach them on those changes? So what's different, I guess? What are the fundamental differences? We had a, a boy who was in the dorm, who was in a dira with a bunch of guys in yeshiva. And we have a a young lady who went to seminary and was with all the girls and they had similar values and similar interests. And then you get married and these are very different beings, obviously. A man is a man, a woman is a woman. So what are the adjustments that are going to have to be made and how do we coach them accordingly once we understand those uh, adjustments and changes that will be happening? Okay, sure. So um, one issue that comes up that's hard to adjust to is you have two people who or coming from com- different homes, right? Completely different homes. Some families talk about their feelings. Some families don't. Some families argue out loud and some families, you know, act like everything's okay or shove things under the rug. So you're going to have two people very often coming from different, different families and they have different expectations, right? So they might expect their spouse to be like their mother or father, right? And they might not think about that when they're engaged, right? So I think what's really important is to um, help help them have healthy expectations, right? Um, The other thing is that many people today, regardless of, you know, what sect of Judaism or orthodoxy they're part of are exposed to some type of movies, right? Or, or some type of unrealistic examples of what a relationship looks like. And then when they're actually married, they're like, wait, you know, (laughs) it's not just like, you know, a happy ending, right? Like, it's, it's not just easy. I mean, I think I great marriages take a great amount of work. And I think when they get when they're newly married, they have to think about this as that I'm building the foundation for my my family, right? So we always say when we teach couples, what are you doing by working on your relationship? You're actually you're actually impacting future generations, right? Your children learn from you and what they see in your relationships, right? So the foundation for your family is starting from your healthy relationship. Your healthy relationship is what's going to guide you with parenting, with adversity, right? So so I think that it's about having that that expectation that this is going to take work that, you know, sometimes and many people need help. It's healthy to ask for help. Some people don't see their parents leaning and asking for help. And that's not that's not so great. I think one of the things that we teach our couples is that it's healthy to ask for help. Right. So um, they need to adjust to now not being a single person. Right. Like you see these boys or girls, they come home from yeshiva or seminary and they basically only have to worry about themselves. I mean, some parents, even if they help, they're really thinking about themselves. Now they're married. They have to be thinking about their spouse all the time. They can't make their own decisions. They also have to work on being a good listener. So some people think if I'm a nice person, I'm going to be a good spouse, good parent, but we can't really wing these things. Like it actually takes work to learn the skills. They have to learn to be more giving. They have to learn to put their spouse first before anyone else. Okay. That, that was a lot. I mean, let, let me, let me kind of, uh, let me go. Okay. Piece piece. That was great, but that was a lot. Uh, number one, okay. 
heard is people come from very different upbringings. And that's independent of them being a man or a woman. Different households will have an impact on the kids and they have different chinuch. So that's number one. Number two, they should have healthy expectations. And that's going to be part of the chinuch process when they come back from yeshiva or they come back from seminary to start discussing, or before that even, healthy expectations as to what marriage is. So that, that was point number two. Number three is it takes work. It takes effort. It's not going to be necessarily easy going. And the more you put in, the more you get out and the longer lasting, hopefully it'll be. Um, number four, I, I heard was get help when necessary. So when necessary, outsource, get people who have adv- advice and uh, not necessarily the parents or maybe uh, definitely not the parents. It should be a professional. A- and last, I would put it as it's not like having a roommate. This isn't just having a roommate that it was one of the guys or one of the ladies, one of the girls, but it's about full-time giving. So is that is that a good recap of, uh, of what you said? Yes. Uh, you also said you have to be a good listener. So maybe I get a point for being a good listener on, on all that. <laughs> Um, so, so, so the other side, obviously, part of this and being a good listener is knowing what the other side is going through. So, so right. what does a, a young man have to know about a young lady? What does a young lady have to know about a young man? Because they are different. We're not talking about necessarily about chinuch now, how they grew up, mm-hmm. but that they are they wire differently. They're 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 just different. You know, what's the what's that book that uh, man is from Mars and women is for Venus or something like that? Yeah. So, Never read it, but uh, but I've heard about it. So what do they have to know? Because there are going to be striking differences uh, between having your roommate in yeshiva and now having your wife. Right. So okay. So some of the things I think that that um that men need to keep in mind about their wife. So you know the the let's say a, a chassan has to keep in mind about his kala's adjustment is that um, a lot of times. Um, women might um, might be upset about something, right? And a typical man is going to come home and she's going to say, I had a really hard day at work. Uh, I hate my job. And he's going to say, get a new job, right? Or what did you do? You know, maybe you can make it better, right? And most women don't want that, right? They just want him to listen and say, that's hard, right? So that's definitely adjustment. Now, with these type of differences, it's not always stereotypical, right? Sometimes the men, I mean, men also need that at times, but this is something that I often see as an adjustment that between, you know, in a new marriage, right? That the men need to learn, listen, she just wants listening. She just wants me there, right? For her. The other changes are, let's say, um, the the wife might expect her husband to know, to pick up his clothing, to clean up after dinner. And he might not be trained to do that. He, he he's not used to having to do much in a dorm, right? And some boys at home are not used to doing much. I think also one of the things that I always tell my couples is my number one piece of marriage advice is don't expect your spouse to read your mind. I, I say this all the time to my, my engaged couples, newlyweds, couples married for 50 years even. A lot of people expect their spouse to read their minds and then they're disappointed when their spouse doesn't know. Or a girl might even say to her husband, I don't want flowers, but she does want flowers, right? So those are some of the adjustments. So so that's expectations. Is, is a, a man has to know that a woman wants to talk things out and be heard. And uh, a man is very solution-oriented and giving the solution is not going to take care of the issue. And also uh, for for each, um, you can't read each other's minds. I, I was just thinking about a Gemara. It's in Sota and other places as well. On a Pasuk, Dagabi Lev Ish. And there are two, uh, when you have a, a, a concern in your heart, 
And there are two different uh, approaches to dealing with that. One is just get it out of your heart, get rid of it. And the other is, you see, that you should speak to others. And I, I just came to mind as you were speaking that it could be that the first approach is the man. Just get rid of it. Just get it out of your heart. Put it away. Um, it'll go away. And, and, uh, don't, don't, don't worry about it. As, and the second one is, uh, that you should teach it to others to, to speak it out. It seems that more is the female approach to things and how you deal with, with Dagos concerns in the heart and, and sensitivities. Right. The other um, piece that I think is important is many women want appreciation, verbal appreciation, right? And it's not always like that, but usually the woman wants it more. And that's something that I think a man has to learn. A man has to learn about um, giving appreciation verbally. Yeah, communication is, is the key. I, I read a study recently that uh, that's the number one reason for divorces is because failures in communication. So that seems to be a very global issue. Yeah, Every problem that couples come in with, whether it's parenting, whether it's financial, I always go at it the same way, the communication, changing the communication. Mm -hmm, Very good. So what would you say are some of the uh, initial disturbing surprises that a newlywed may have from his or her spouse? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, this is horrific. This is shocking to me. Had I known about this X, you know, what are some of the things that you see that that, uh, a woman can be surprised about in a man or a man could be surprised about in a woman? Okay, so I'll start with the lower level and then move on to the higher level. So on a lower level, a, a spouse might be surprised that their spouse being spoiled, their spending habits, you know, going out to eat all the time, um, especially if they're coming from different backgrounds, laziness, cleanliness, laziness, right? Maybe somebody marries someone who is a yeshiva bacher sitting and learning, and then they see, oh, you know what? He doesn't go to Minyan, or um, he's not going back to yeshiva if I don't push him. That could be very upsetting for a newlywed Basiago girl or any from woman, right? On the other side, uh, Hassan might be disappointed by a, by his kala um, talking on the phone to her friends a lot, talking to her mother a lot. Maybe she has to call and ask a lot of questions and she wants to be on the phone with her family or that that's lower level. Now, something that unfortunately we're seeing a lot of today is um, a wife finding out about a porn addiction. And this is, be- I've, I see this all the time now, unfortunately, it's it's really, it's a huge problem. I think it's on the one hand, a lot of times when we see a porn addiction, it comes from a guy who had a traumatic background, like absent parents or dysfunctional home. And he, he, he found this and then that became his way to cope with pain, right? That's one way. Then sometimes it's just like that it's just too accessible today. And these boys start and then they can't stop. And one thing that is very interesting is that some of these boys assume, you know what, once I get married, there goes my porn addiction. Why would I have a porn addiction when I have a wife? And it does not go away on its own. You can't just turn that off. So when a girl, a woman is newly married, now sometimes it comes out right away. Sometimes it doesn't come out for three, four 10, 15 years. This is a huge betrayal for a wife to find out. Um, Now, sometimes they'll say, wait a minute, I'm not surprised. Something was off. Sometimes it comes as a huge surprise. But either way, this is a betrayal that has to be treated almost as as an affair. 
you need to do so much repair work on a marriage. Now, I do see couples that when they find out there's a porn addiction, there's a whole specialty in therapy now called a sex addiction therapist. There's many from therapists doing this to help these people. So if they find out they have this problem, there is help available. And I've seen people work on their marriage and have a beautiful relationship. But this is a is a, ter- a terrible surprise that someone might find out about after they get married. So, so let's say that uh, the woman discovers something or the man discovers something once they've gotten married. So they've gotten married already. How do you deal with these issues? You said there are specialists for these areas. So how does the woman, when she finds out about something, does she go to the husband and say, we need to go to therapy? I found out about this. What's that conversation going to look like? And it doesn't have to be the uh, the porn addiction necessary. It could be that you find out that he's a bum or that- uh, right on medication or what, whatever the case or may drinking, be. Or drinking too much. Yeah. So how, how do you broach the conversation and how do you decide if you're going to stick with it and how you're going to deal with it? Usually they, when the one, the girl finds out the cat's out of the bag and she tells him that's what I've seen in most cases. And then the question is, are they aware enough to get the right help? Are they, um, are they evolved enough to, 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 to ask for help and say, you know what? this is okay, I'm going to ask for help. So some people listen, they're very savvy, they go on the internet, they do the research, they call relief, they find good help, but some people don't. And you really have to go to the right person to help you with these issues. Usually in this case, they would need individual therapy and couples therapy with any type of addiction. So that that means three therapists being involved. Correct. Okay. Okay. Now, now that's when you find out after marriage. Is it advisable for couples in advance of marriage? And even if they don't sense anything is wrong, but just to go to coaching or therapy, communication therapy, how, how should uh, couples handle when they want to make sure they want to start off on the right foot? Is there is there something available for workshops, coaching, teaching to make sure that they have a successful marriage and, and not making them think that there's anything wrong with either of them, but just let's go to this together and try to have uh, some real uh, coaching together, some teachings. Uh, so we're on the same page and we can we can uh, have a, a smooth start to things. Okay. Yeah. So that's, so it's interesting because if you think about it for someone to drive a car, they need to take a course and take a test, but to get married, you can be a, come a certain age and you can just get married. That's a little scary, right? So the marriage is the foundation for beginning our family, our children's lives. And people just think they can wing it. So yes, there is, there is education available and Outside of the firm world and the secular world, it's actually in style to take premarital education. People do it. They think it's great. They feel good about it. I have secular couples that come to take premarital education also. In in the Catholic church, it's required. And yet, like I said before, all the rabbis are upset about the divorces, but no one has taken a stand. Actually, there are a few rabbis who do require. There's a few rabbis out there who say, listen, if you want to get married, you want me to be your your Masada Kiddushin? You have to take a premarital course. In fact, Rabbi Arya Leibowitz, he won't marry a couple if they don't take premarital education. Unfortunately, there are some other rabbis that are that are realizing that, but many aren't. And if you think about it, premarital education, I'm not talking about therapy. I'm talking about learning how to have a healthy relationship is as important as chassan and kala classes. And it actually goes together because you can't really be you need the the edu- the communication piece to go with the intimacy piece right so there are courses available and um i think it's a no brainer right 
why would we not want to start our marriages and why would we not want to prepare our children for healthy marriages? Right. I, I, I agree with that fully. Is there a hurdle to get over? Is there, is there like a stigma to such a thing, like a stigma going to therapy? Or is this something that we should simply say this is well advised before driving a car, you take a course before you uh, become a lifesaver, you take a course before you join Hatzalah, you take a course and before you get married, you take a course. Well, that's the problem. In our in the from community, there's a stigma. We're always behind, you know, the rest of the world in terms of coming around to these things. When I was growing up, nobody talked about therapy. Today, our generation people talk about therapy much more openly. However, unfortunately, some people think premarital education, they are afraid of it. Um, I, I've seen that many that I do have a bunch of rabbis, they'll only send me couples if there's a problem. And it's really not therapy, it's education. So we're really behind on this. And it's a shame because like, why would we not? This is more important than your job or your employment. So why would you not want to be prepared? Right. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Mrs. Flug, you should have tremendous atzlacha. You give these workshops, right? It's, it's, uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Is, is it a couple that comes together to, to these courses, workshops, or do they have it separately, yes. men, women separately? Yes. So, and, and do you have multiple I couples? Cater it it could be catered based on like their religious observance, right? So if they're a couple that is very yeshivish or they haven't known each other long, I'll talk to them briefly before the wedding about healthy communication, but I'll really do the workshop after they're married. So it really depends. Okay, very good. Well, how do people get in touch with you then? They can go on paninaflugelcsw.com. And it has information there. Yeah. The other thing is that if anyone's interested in becoming a teacher to teach premarital couples, I'm happy to help guide them because we definitely need more. And and actually, we did a I did a training course where we taught thirty from therapists, and it, it was therapists, rabbis, rabbis, and kala teachers. So, rabbis and chassan and kala teachers can give a course. You don't have to be a therapist. Oh, very interesting. Okay, so please get in touch with Mrs. Flug. We should have another one of those uh, sessions go <laughs> forward. But thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your being on the show. Thank you so much for having me.